This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. In the last episode of the Bureau, we dug deep into the culture of the bootleg vinyl record. And in this episode, we're going crate digging again as we dig deep into another underground musical activity right on the fringes of legality. Sampling. The borrowing, stealing, plundering, adapting of existing audio songs or sounds to make new pieces, audio songs or sounds. Now, sampling might have started off as a countercultural underground cut and paste technique used by experimental artists. But through the 70s and 80s and 90s, it ended up powering a huge amount of hip hop records and some very big hit tunes. And who better to guide us through the crazy world of sampling than John Moore, one half of Sonic Innovators and sampling sorcerers Colcut, along with Matt Black, with who he co-founded the highly influential Ninja Tune record label. Plus, our old friend, turntablist, DJ and crate digger himself, DJ Food Strictly Kev. We're going to hear some of John and Kev's favourite sampling tunes. Hear all about the use of the tape recorder pause button, copyright law, James Brown, George Michael, Lee Scratch Perry, Grandmaster Flash, all sorts of other strange artists, music concrete, and pop cultural plundering, amongst other things. But let's dive straight in and start with this. So kids, what time it is from 1987 and the author, is it the author of a track that's been sampled or made of samples is with us, Jonathan Moore. Hello, John. Hello, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. That's a while ago. How does it feel listening to that after all this Um, time? It's so much part of Matt and I's DNA now that I really enjoy it. You know, I can see it's, you know, it's an amazing piece of work. Mainly Matt did 98% of that in his little bedroom in... uh, in North London, and um, took him a long time to do it. You know, it's it's described as one of the first tracks to be made entirely out of samples, is it? Probably could be counted as the first UK mix made out entirely of other samples, but it's certainly not the first worldwide record, no. Do you mind me telling people some of the samples that are in it? No, I'm absolutely not. I think, in fact, there's a... Probably a YouTube video with all of them listed. <laughs> You've got Bob Smith and Edward Keane's Howdy Doody, Louis Primer's I Want to Be Like You, James Brown's Funky Dunner, Drummer, D-Train's Music, Incredible Bongo Band, Apache, Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals, Bambara's Shack Up, Jimmy Castor, Bunch King Kong, Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers, Busting Loose. That's that's a fair list, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a great DJ set on its own. You know, it was part of the kind of scene at that time, the club scene at that time, rare groove scene, if you want to mm. call it that. Um, you know, that was an important part of it, those kind of mixes. So 
that um, that definitely had an influence on the two of us. John, so you are obviously one half of Coca and um, credited as the pioneers for pop sampling in the 1980s, first stars of UK electronic dance music, and of course produced, written, wrote, remixed many, many, many people, and of course founder of Ninja Tune. Um, and we're here with another one of your artists and collaborators, now known as DJ Food, or we call him Strictly Kev. Right, Kev? Hi, how's it going, Stephen? It's all right, yeah. So listen, uh, uh, you know, John's talking about that, that track, but I mean, for anybody who doesn't know what sampling is, and what is it? Well, it's a form of theft in a lot of ways. Yeah, John Oswald calls it electro-quoting, which is quite a nice term, bit of terminology which never caught on, but... You know, you're taking something recognisable from someone else and part of the joy of sampling and listening to sampled records or mixes is that you're recognising elements from elsewhere and the art of it is putting those together interestingly, entertainingly and sometimes humorously. There's a bit of humour in that Colcott record, right? Oh, definitely. John, is theft, is that how you see it? A little bit of artistic theft or is it something a lot more creative you know we've got to pick a pocket or two <laughs> <laughs> and yeah you know if we were to have put that out and it kind of in an official capacity at the time it would have got us into trouble so we did actually take all sorts of precautions i.e sort of inventing various characters and down to the fact that we even um used a, a welder like a little sort of soldering thing to take out the matrix number on the in inside of the groove of the record so you can identify what pressing plant it came from so you know you know there always was a concern but it sort of got to a point where it became a mexican standoff really and then you know the industry always recognizes where there's money to be made so Mm. they've tried hard to look at ways of making it function yeah we're going to circle back to that whole legality thing but for you i mean let's back up the truck with both of you so like john for you when did you first become aware of this thing let's call it sampling you know be was it was it pre uh pre that time i mean when did you first hear about it and what did it mean to you suppose you know you're looking really at the late 70s early 80s in in this you can start going back to that point so you go back sort of 10 years from where we made that record and you're looking at you know disco djs doing mixes bootlegs of disco records kind of um tape edited together not to forget of course all the all the various artists that um you know used the idea of sampling not necessarily records but sampling art and sampling Mm. Um, language and various other things that predate that. So, you know, you can then go William Burroughs and mm. Kirk Twitters and um, Salvador Dali and, you know, references really, I suppose. So there's a combination of, of, of a sort of DJ mentality of making a mix and then a sort of um, cultural references and a cachet that's involved in those recognisable chunks. And, you know, I saw that in quite a lot of different records, Brian Eno and and his stuff, you know, there's plenty of sampling in, in there, especially the stuff that he did to run with various other people. I think the, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, I think, was... Yeah, uh, that's a big sample record, big sample record, yeah. right. So, Kev, I mean, you're a DJ, mm. and uh, uh, too, and um, so there is that live performance aspect of it. Some of it came from, isn't it, mixing two records live and then coming up with a third thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Grandmaster Flash was probably the first sort of master of that. Um, Grandmaster Flash and his adventures on the wheels of steel, Came out in Sugar Hill, on Sugar Hill, I think, 81, which is 
basically him cutting together Blondie, Incredible Bongo Band, Chic, uh, Queen, and people like that, uh, and mixing it into a sort of non-stop party mega mix with the Furious Five rapping. He actually, he even cuts up his own Furious Five records into into the mix as well. Um, but I think the most going back a bit further, as John was saying, you know, the art world was the first sort of cultural sector to sample, and you've got people like Warhol, obviously, and Dali, as you said, and um, you know, Lichtenstein copying from comics and things like that, um, and that seemed to just be taken as a given. You know, pop art was, you know, them plundering, you know, the world of commerce, and. I don't know if there's any lawsuits attached to any of that. There probably was a few, but... Yeah, know. and then like with some music concrete and stuff, which is was cutting up and using tapes quite early yeah. on, right, in the, even the 40s and 50s. I mean, um, John mentioned uh, William Burroughs, and we were talking about him earlier, wasn't yeah. it? With it, going around London with his tape recorder, yeah. just plus in record yeah. sometimes, and then just, yeah. just it all came together in a kind of quite random way. I don't think anybody was uh, suing Burroughs, were they, first? Well, a lot of that, it, it tended to be uh, concrete sounds, you know, mm. so it was, they were, you know, they were taping the sounds of metal and... And 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 noise from the street and the city maybe um, maybe one of the first recognisable um, sort of tape art pieces that I I've brought along is uh, the James Tenney piece um, collage number one which is called Blue Suede in brackets which is basically Elvis chopped up and this was from 1961 it's one of his first tape pieces um, and it's recognisably Elvis. <laughs> Well, I never heard Elvis sound like before. No, it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you think the king in rock and roll would be happy with that um, remix? I don't know. You know, I think it would have been so under the radar for him and mm. his people, and also so sort of esoteric that I doubt it ever even, you know, p- passed his ears. Um, uh, John, so there, we're going to hear one of yours in a minute. Now, it's Lee Scratch Perry, the late great, just died, right? I mean, what role did he play in all this? I heard these found sounds i suppose you could say they were on on his mixes so you know everything from boing clock sounds to um in particular this one where there's these kids that are laughing and he's obviously tape edited it somehow in unless it just fell in rhythm but it's perfectly in rhythm in this track people funny boy and it's not obvious necessarily to a lot of people but you know, knowing his work, there's a lot of bits of found sound and sampling and stuff and bits where you can just hear him re- rewinding tapes and sort of flying things over. So it was quite influential on the way I thought about sampling as well. So obviously he's not using like a, a traditional method as such. It's more, more I think, tape, tape edit.
for us anyway, for me and Matt, he was a very important part of that process of learning various different new new ways as they were at that point of making music. So, you know, combination of say of the turntable stuff that we'd learnt from Grandmaster Flash and various other DJs over the course of the eighties decade and um, mixed together with with the sort of sound and uh, the the weird sound that Perry got and the way he mixed things and the way he, he threw bits and pieces into the mix. So he was using the tape recorder, right? So it's, this is all pre-sampler as we know it, pre-sort of Akai and all that, right? Yes. And and the thing which strikes me about that kind of music is that I have no idea like how musical he was in a traditional way, or actually how musical uh, you you guys are in a traditional way. I mean, you might be classical, classically trained for, I know. But I mean, the thing which strikes me about that way of making music is, is that you didn't need to be classically trained. You didn't need to be musical in the traditional sense at all. You needed to have imagination, right? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, you just have to listen to Lee Perry talking on his own. You know, we actually recorded stuff went with him when we did the meltdown for him at um, Royal Festival Hall and just the way he talks it's music it's very poetic and he's like James Brown James Brown wasn't traditionally trained musician but what he does is he brings this um, otherworldliness to the mix which makes it very special interestingly enough James Brown also used tape edits and slipped lots of bits of spoken word into quite a few of his tracks as various different mixes. I think Soul Power's one, which has got some Martin Luther King, possibly. Yeah, and Baby's Crying as well. Baby's Crying. Yeah. So, you know, and, you know, they say I'm not musically trained as such. So perhaps that's what it is. Matt and I refer to it as the joy of ignorance. <laughs> you mean the joy of actually not being musically trained, so you're not actually constrained by thinking, you know, what's this core sequence or whatever. It's just like, how does this sound fit with yeah. this sound? Yeah, if it works, it works. And, you know, that's, it's all subjective anyway. It's fascinating how, you know, you can play the same thing to 10 different people and you'll get 10 different responses, which is the wonder of music, really. Mm. Mm. Kev, I mean, um, for you, that's uh, uh, that's the way it works, is it, too, is a kind of collaging sounds and textures and stuff together. I mean, do you think melodically and stuff, or is that is it much more for you like a bit like doing a painting or something? Oh, it's definitely collage. It's always been collage. And um, one of the other songs that John's picked, uh, the lessons from Double D and Steinsky, was the first time that I realised I could do that because I could deconstruct what I was hearing the first time I heard the lessons, which were essentially mega mixes of pop records with spoken word pieces thrown in and immediately, you know, after trying to learn the guitar and failing dismally as a child uh, and not being allowed a drum kit, the next point of call was the turntable after I realised that I could deconstruct this collage and make it out of tape edits. So when you say deconstruct it, you mean you could hear what was going on, like blocks of sound or something, which would be stuck together or overlaid or... Yeah, I could recognise songs, pop, you know, there's a bit of Culture Club here, there's a bit of Junior there, there's a bit of Bugs Bunny, there's a bit of Dirty Harry. You know, you can identify fairly easily a lot of the sources, even if you don't maybe get the sort of what were then fairly obscure funk records. Um, There was enough pop pop culture uh, sprinkled over the top to easily pick out certain elements. You see, three. You see, two. You see, one. 
Vi ses. Now we come to the payoff. John, that was one of your choices. Why is that? <laughs> well, it was really how um, Matt and I bonded over those mixes in many respects. I was working um, in a record store in Berwick Street, Reckless Records, and um, there were a lot of record shops around in those days. And there was one in particular that used to sell mostly high energy records, disco records, um, and They'd get these DJ mixes in, and I heard they had lesson one, and I heard it, and I was like, that's amazing. And I paid a lot of money for it in those days. I can't remember how much, but I vaguely think it was around about £15 or maybe even 30 quid for it, um, which was a stupid amount of money, really, to pay for record. But I just thought it was so amazing. And then when I met Matt, when he came into the record shop to play me Say Kids, He'd also bought a copy of it, and so you know we got chatting, and um, it's in a way, so, you know, it was a what we did in the early days was a homage to Double D and Science. It was so clever what they did. When you heard it, you could sort of deconstruct it. You can think, hold on a minute, I know what's happening there, and it's so. And then you can set about trying to do not to remake that track, but to do something like that. Yeah, so it gave a template a very good, clear, evidential template about how to construct effectively a, a song out of other people's songs. And, um, you know, a lot of the techniques that worked out from there still using to this day. Hmm. And you know, I'm sure Steinsky would say we met him and had long conversations about stuff. And I'm sure he would say that, um, you know, he was also influenced by music in many ways to distill the essence of how to construct something but you know calling them the lessons was was appropriate i i want to know i want to get a bit nerdy so i want to know how you guys actually did it how were you putting them together yourself uh we had a four track cassette recorder and it had a really good pause button on it and we had uh, two turntables, a mixer with a little sampler on it, a Maxim delay unit, and uh, some cheap kind of um, Radio Shack reverb. And Matt would hold the record on the turntable and hold the pause button, wiki, 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 release the pause button on the first beat of the first bar of the record, let that play, do some stuff on the turntable with it, and then um, pause it again in the, in the musically the right place and, and start again. And in that way, building up a kind of, um, you know, a patchwork backing track and then adding more stuff and layers as you went. So all from the, all from the turntables. 
So I can see Kev smiling is he's sort of smiling fondly <laughs> those days. Well, I, I, obviously I wasn't there when when Matt and, and and John were making that in those ways, but I I started from a different a similar similar thing. But I had a, a one of the stereos with the cassette and the turntable all built in, and what John said at the end, at the start there was you needed a good pause button, and a good pause button would cleanly cut where you paused it without a click and without a crackle and without basically sort of muffling um, the tape because there was sometimes you had to do a drop in which was where you'd you get to a point you'd have to do an edit and it would kind of mangle the tape if you didn't have a good tape edit a good tape machine and a good sharp pause button you know you need something that clicked and clunked not a sort of push button thing like later but um, I used to do that with, with tapes I used to have a I only had one deck when I first did my first one turntable mix. I used to play stuff off of the turntable, record the section I needed, and then kind of pause it and go into a little. And I used to do sort of little, uh, they would they be Latin rascal-esque sort of tape edits, but with a cassette rather than an actual reel of tape and a razor blade, as in they would have done in New York, where you stutter something and you repeat it like a sort of no no 19 effect, like a Paul Hardcastle. Right. would do that with the tape the tape player like film editing tape yeah. I mean right yeah so John I mean the thing about that is that the listening to that double D track there and what you're talking about and it actually listening <clears throat> a bit earlier to say kids what time is it is that it's not like you can I can hear the technique the technique that we're using but it gives it a certain flavour right which it seems to me is missing from computer edited stuff something to do with like is it something to do with like the hands on uh, you know, and the simplicity of the technology that you've got to be quite inventive or something. I definitely think that the restriction in the technology in those days helped be creative because you had to find ways around it. Um, and also the timing mm. is still quite natural because you're not tying it to a template to a grid to a graph in any sense whatsoever so it, interestingly i took that four track cassette player and digitized it a few years ago and digitized the original cassette and could put it into ableton which is a bit of software that enables you to make music and you could i could see and it, it doesn't stick to the te- to a, to one tempo, it actually gets faster and faster towards <laughs> the end. You know, which is is a, a musical device that they use in classical music to make things more exciting. Right. So you guys were getting more excited as you went on with the. Yeah, gym. I mean, it's a natural DJ thing to do. Right. To, you know, but yeah. So, but it was interesting that you know rebuilding it in Ableton was fascinating, really, because. You know, it did take a certain amount of the of the life out of it. And actually, when I did that, I learned about a bit more about how to sort of change the way I worked in Ableton so that I could still bring that ability. So now, if I do a mix in Ableton, I will kind of fuck around with the tempos and what have you. And mm-hmm. I try and think in the way that I would have done it on turntables and using a four set, you know, four track and what have you. Yeah, there's a, there's a rigidity to digital technology sometimes, which you can overcome easily. But uh, I remember doing a collaboration with somebody years ago, and I um, he sent me some parts for a tune we were collaborating on, and I put it in, and it would drift out of tempo. And I said, 
I thought this was 84, but it's gone up to 86. And he said, oh, yes, I've put that in. I basically wanted it to sound more live. And there's a there's a natural thing for most DJs to start off slower mm. and build in tempo towards the, the end of the night or the end of the set because it just creates excitement, you know. And if, if you're slowing down from fast, it's basically it's having the opposite effect that you want the crowd to have. Mm. So that's a kind of common thing with most DJs. Well, also, I mean, um, even with, like, Beatles records and stuff, you can tell that when they've come to mix them, they've actually just speeded up the tape a bit, haven't they? It's like <laughs> you try and play along with them, and it's like, what key's that in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's an edit, isn't there, from two different pieces, and yeah. they're out of, they're in different yeah. tunes yeah. because they've been... And, of course, talking about the Beatles, so, of course, mm. um, they were doing a bit of sampling themselves, weren't they? They were, yeah. So, 68, the White Album's got Revolution Number no. 9 on it, which is John Lennon and Yoko Ono's sort of concrete piece, isn't it? Uh, where they're flying in bits of, is it King Lear from a BBC radio play that was actually on the radio at the time they're recording? It was that mm. random, you know, they were literally just flying in bits. But before that, you had, um, uh, the year before that in 67, you had Marshall McLuhan releasing the audio version of his Medium is the Massage book um, on vinyl and almost sort of quoting from the book and recreating a soundscape collage in a studio not necessarily sampling other people's things i think it was all pre-recorded and then collaged in the studio but he's he's doing a, an audio version of his own book jiggery pokery and talk straight turkey the word is out i'm not too old Yeah, how about that? There'll probably be some music, but we'll manage to find a quiet corner where we can talk. Uh, Professor McClure. Our time is a time for crossing barriers, for erasing old categories, for probing around. That's what you were doing, isn't it, um, John? You were erasing old barriers and probing around? <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the object of every artist, isn't it? Yeah. I think the probing is, is <laughs> something I might disagree with. Barriers, definitely. You know, I'm still intrigued by the way you guys work. So, okay, so you started off with the, you know, the cassette, with the four-track cassette. Mm. And then when you guys were working together, so like as uh, DJ Feed originally or Ninja, and you were, you did some stuff together. So how would it work? I mean, is somebody crate digging? Is somebody sort of like playing a record and said, listen to this beat or listen to this bit here? I mean, how did you put it? I'm, I'm intrigued when you're actually collaborating, how you actually brought all these samples together. Or did you all build up huge libraries of stuff which you thought cool and then just start throwing them into the pot? You know, I immediately think of um, beats and pieces Mark II. Mm, more beats and pieces, yeah. More beats and pieces, exactly. And, you know, that was quite an interesting way of working because the original one w was done in a similar fashion to, say, kids. So, except we use a 24 track rather than a four track and went into a proper studio. But we still made tape loops. We still did it all off um, record and we still just kind of chopped it up from, you know, started at the beginning and, and then just made it up as we went along. So um, the more beats and pieces, we did a lot of programming. I, I, I worked with this chap who's a brilliant drummer, so we did loads of 
new drum breaks based on old drum breaks but actually recorded in his studio and then sampled it all up so then we had a whole bunch of samples and then we made a record or two records i think i can't quite remember now literally cut records for djs with the samples on yeah Mm. ah so you actually put all the samples got them like on a dub plate or something did you Mm. Well, it, yeah. it, it was actually pressed. It was a you pressed. know a, a right. pair of vinyl records. Uh, this is a very unorthodox way to do it. I think, I think maybe you you had the money to do it, didn't you? In you know they weren't very expensive to, in those days. Cutting fifty test pressings or whatever yeah. it was. No, it wasn't significantly pricey, and um, we'd done all the mastering and all of that in house, so we didn't really have to do that. So it was just a question of sticking it onto vinyl. So. Mm. It was self-indulgent, though, I will be honest to say that. But without that, we wouldn't have been able to have made that record. No, so. no. And then a lot of those records were then sampled, they were scratched, they were sent out to other people to remix, like Kid Koala, Qbert, I think Tortoise did a mix as well, and myself and, and Ollie from The Herbalizer did a, a mix, and we would jam live with the literal vinyl, using that as the source. So yeah. that gave it and then a sort of another sort of analogue kind of... Um, quality as well and you could literally this was before you could there were no sort of digital DJing systems so if you wanted to scratch the thing you had to fake it you had to kind of almost cut in a scratch sound and then dub on the effect that you were going to scratch and it never sounded quite the same amazing so i mean so the, the idea of putting it onto vinyl mm. means that actually that gives it a certain sound anyway right mm. and then and then also then you can play with it right mm. as a physical thing yeah right which you can then sort of take it another analog layer in and so the sound itself starts to get even more changed is that yeah it? Is that yeah, it? yeah definitely i remember when we were actually sort of auditioning the breaks there was quite a lot of auditioning going on in the studio where we'd all bring different records and go how about this how about that and i think i brought in some sort of um i think i brought in a well i probably shouldn't say <laughs> who the break beat was for but let's say a famous rock drummer's break and we used it in one particular bridge section of the song but but paul brook the programmer sampled it in and basically chopped everything up and then swung the whole thing so that it was it was it was the same pattern but it had a way more swing. It wasn't a straight rock drum anymore. It was more of a you know, sort of a, a funkier, funkier version. A funkier version of Led Zeppelin? Not Led Zeppelin, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Um, right, so, um, John, so you, you were experimenting with a lot of different uh, techniques and stuff. Now, you've got another track here, which is quite interesting which is this Dickie Goodman flying saucer just tell us about that this was used by Double D and Steinsey on the lessons um this actual track Mars needs women <laughs> is that the phrase yeah Ken? that's right that's on lesson three yeah and um you know I've been aware of these mostly seven inches not and mostly actually made by radio DJs in America and they Go, I suppose you could say, under the term of cutting records. Mm. So effectively, the radio DJ would say some clever bit of stuff and then cut a record in and play a little bit of maybe The Drifters, you know, Saturday night. And so, and then make a little story by chopping these minute little parts of mm. records together and sort of quote from a James Brown record or quote from somebody else. And it fascinated me that they were able to do this and sort of get away with it in some respects. But it seemed very popular. There was a lot of them about. It's an area of 
of record collecting that I was quite interested in, but I've sort of given up now, to be honest. But there's probably a whole ton of really interesting records. There was a lot of cash-ins because, it, you know, they were quite popular, weren't they, Kev? I don't oh, yeah. Think, but, like, you know, they sold. But then all sorts of weird records sold in America back in the day. So yeah, they were, they were novelty records, really, and I think they were more prevalent sort of in the 60s. And the the genesis of of them all was always there was a, a question and answer thing, the DJ or the or the sometimes the commentator or on the spot reporter would ask a question and the answer would come back as a quote from a, a popular song of the day, you know, answering his question. We interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. Real when I feel what my heart can't conceal. That was the Clatters recording. Too real. We switch you now to our on-the-spot reporter downtown. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Take it away, John Cameron Cameron. Uh, this is John Cameron Cameron downtown. Uh, pardon me, madam, would you tell our audience what would you do if the saucer were to land? What I'm gonna do... It's hard to tell. Uh, the gentleman with the guitar, what would you do, sir? I mean, it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? It's so, it's so inventive, actually, and creative, isn't it? There were, there were loads as well. It was the, there was a, a lot about the flying saucers, and then there was Santa meets the flying saucer, and then there was a James Brown one, a Shaft one, a Mr. Jaws one, Superman. You know, all, all cultural icons of the day were kind of gone through. And it, I think it got old quite quickly, but... You know, Dickie Goodman was one of the sort of definite pioneers of that. And nobody was bothering about uh, getting permissions and uh, licenses and all that sort of stuff, right? They're just getting on with it, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know how much of a hit some of them were, but I'd imagine there was a writ if there was a hit somewhere. Well, let's talk about that, actually, because it is a big area in sampling. John, why why is sampling on the edge of legality? Well, you're, uh, you know, effectively infringing somebody else's copyright when you actually take an existing work and usually that work has two owners so there's the publishing rights and the mechanical rights so i.e who wrote it and and the actual physical object in itself right so for people for people who don't know the kind of weirdness of the music industry you've got like we say with hound dog You've got Lieber and Stoller wrote that song. So if 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 Kev does a rec- recording of Hound Dog, Lieber and Stoller's publishers get paid. But then Elvis, of course, recorded it. So if you play out the Elvis version, Elvis's estate is going to get paid. It's for people outside the music industry. It's always a bit weird, isn't mm. it? There's two. There's these two sides of it, right? So exactly. And so you know, most artists, if they've created something, you know, have a view that that's a significant um, asset as such. And so they want to protect that. So not necessarily financially, you know, it can be just protected culturally. So, you know, if say somebody who was a, I don't know, some right wing nut job on some right wing nut job radio started using one of our records, I would object to that. So I can perfectly understand why some people would object to their works being used. Other people had no problem with it because they could see the creativity and they could see the sort of traditional, in a traditional sense, how that works. So George Clinton was a good example. So he was asked about what he thought about, um, you know, De La Soul sampling a lot of 
his early work. And he said, Tillerson, no problem. They pay real good. Others can really object to it and don't like it at all and don't understand it. And I, I think, in a way, it is the artist's prerogative to do that. And, the, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes that um, you can't necessarily use a sample that you want to. It's actually, the sort of illegality of it gives it a sort of kudos, a cachet of difficult mm. to find, but it sort of does. I mean, we were sampled by George Michael, for example. Well, not by George Michael, but probably by a musician who wrote something that George Michael ended up singing on or wrote a backing track or the engineer in the studios. How and, did you feel about that? I mean, at first I was like, no, no, this can't be right. And then Patrick... PC, the other half of DJ Fu, phoned me up because he it was his scratching that had been sampled in a little bit of a beat, I think. <clears throat> and he's like, have you heard that? And I was like, okay. So I checked it out. I, I got the record and I lined the sample up and slowed it down. And it was, you know, it was absolutely that chunk. So we went um, and asked for some money. And, you know, it could, if we'd have been big boys, we could have probably really gone to town. But I actually kind of like George. And um, so we we got some cash to pay us, which was very handy. And we asked for a pair of silk socks each, which was <laughs> nice. And, Wasn't this a bit of poacher-turned-gamekeeper, though? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. The weird so, thing about sampling, though, is there's, there's two things. There's, um, there's You're not asking permission. And some people, that gets people's back up. Mm. It's like, how dare you take my thing without asking? I would have been fine with it if you'd have asked. But then there's also there's where there's a hit, there's a rip, where people are obviously making a lot of money. A good example would be Mars Pump Up the Volume, who was sampling all sorts of people and sounds, including, I think, Cold Cut. Weren't they, they sampling you, John? They sample something that we sample from somebody else. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, where there's a hit, there's a writ, there's a lot of money, and people come out the woodwork going, I want my cut. Yeah, um, that's absolutely the dichotomy of, of sampling, really. I, I think Matt and I felt about George Michael, not more, not necessarily about him as such as the artist. It was more about the fact that it was on a major label, and major labels have fucked other people over, mm. over samples. Right. And so we thought, well, you know, you're a major label, you've given other sampling artists a hard time quite often. Mm. And this was when Ninja was quite small as well. Ninja was, I think, yeah. like 94, wasn't it, John, or something? Yeah. So. I mean, we, we could have caused some significant problems if we wanted to, but we didn't really want to do that. It was more of just making a kind of point. So um, Richard Spencer, who owns the copyright for the widely sampled Amen Break, mm. never, received, okay. never received any royalties, and he said that sampling was plagiarism, but later said it was flattering. Right, now, and um, Simon Reynolds, you know, the music journalist, mm. he's, he described it as like the man who goes to the sperm bank and then unknowingly size hundreds of children. <laughs> <laughs> In the yeah. case of Funky Drummer and Amen Brother, probably he's right, yeah. Right. But on the other side, the turtle sued De La Soul for using an unclear sample. Uh, and uh, turtle singer, this is a bit harsh, Mark Volman told the Los Angeles Times, sampling is just a longer term for theft. Anybody who can honestly say sampling is some sort of creativity has never done anything creative. Oh, that's yeah. a man burned, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, 
it's no wonder they didn't get very far with an attitude like that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what you're both saying is, is that, like, okay, there's a whole legal thing we should keep coming back to and there's something mm. to be addressed there, particularly from the there art- is, artist's is. point of view, maybe more than the label's point of view. But, of course, it is incredibly creative, isn't it? This thing about bringing different sounds from all over the place, all over music history, all over the world, possibly, and bringing them together in a new way. And it has the point has been made, and I'd be interested to hear what you're, you're both both of yours view on this is is that when the legal eagles got involved the writs started flying around and there's some big high profile cases of records being pulled mm. that that had a very chilling effect on hip hop mm. because that had depended upon actually being able to kind of fairly widely plunder stuff uh, but in a situation when everybody's looking over their shoulder and getting very nervous, it's a bit, it's, it had a constraining effect. I mean, do you, is that the case, do you think? Oh, what? definitely, yeah. I mean, hip-hop started out copying by live replays of things like Chic and, and the disco era. Uh, and then people got samplers and started sampling. But this was still a very underground music, so it was barely getting radio play. It was getting club play and it was getting you know good word of mouth and underground exposure but it wasn't until there started being the hits run dmc you know who themselves plagiarized um uh aerosmith with walk this way but got the band involved to basically kind of make it okay but they were previously sampling people like the monkeys uh and then obviously de la soul was the big huge case um where three feet high rising blew up and was an international number one hit singles sampling Hall and & Oates and Steely Dan and, and you know, they were fairly blatant on that record. But, you know, it started out as a sort of, you know, underground collage sort of piece by Prince Paul. Uh, I don't, don't think I expected it to blow up quite the way it did. Um, and that was really the, the, the where the floodgates opened and the lawyers got involved. And John, did you feel that it had a sort of chilling effect on what you could do when, it, when <clears throat> knowing, knowing that the kind of uh, legal spotlight started to shine on people? I definitely think it had an effect on our attitude towards making music, certainly. But I think there was still, there are still plenty of people out there who've got catalogue who are quite happy for sampling to take place. So you know, they, there are people who can see that actually. Um, when you add um, in this into the mix, you know it can be quite sig- a significant um, earner for everybody. So you know we all bring something to the to the table. So I think it's better to have a slice of a larger pie than it is to have a slice of a smaller pie, and that's kind of how we try and explain that to people. So for example, with Mr. Scrub and his. <clears throat> sampling on get a move on you know at first they were pretty moody about it but they saw the benefits and we worked together and i think you know ultimately out of that both parties got a better result rather than one person sort of shutting it down and actually then suffering themselves so it's just an attitude isn't it and I say I totally get why some artists don't want that to happen. Yeah, that's another thing about sampling is it's a career reviver. You know, James Brown's career was pretty much in the dumper by the time he was being discovered and resampled by hip-hop artists. David, David Axelrod was fair, barely known until people like Shadow and 
and Puff Daddy and people like that started sampling him, Dre yeah. and, and all that. I was out with uh, for dinner with um, David uh, from Mew the other night, and he was telling me that re- quite recently, um, Kanye West um, has got a track which has got a sample from a Mew artist, and it's somebody from the 80s mm. who was really obscure, like an 80s Manchester indie band. Mm. Having those, oh, it ended up on a Kanye West record. I guess, like John was saying earlier, it's probably a programmer's, you know, yeah. not Kanye West himself, but a programmer's no. put it on there. But what David was saying was amazing is, is that they didn't clear it in advance. They, after the record was out, they came to Mute. And of mm. course, like like John was just saying, Mute take a collaborative approach to it rather than we're going to screw these guys because we've yeah. got them over a barrel. Like it's like there's some business to be done. But what you were saying then, um, uh, Kevin, is because in a way, for a band who's maybe made a couple of records in the 80s and 90s and then, you know, they're getting on with the rest of their lives. It's mm. like Christmas, isn't it? And oh, then suddenly, like, you get a phone call and say, "Hey, you know, you got a paycheck. You yeah. get paid, right?" Which is that's nice, right? Yeah, and someone of Kanye West's size or, or Dr. Dre's size can afford to do that. Put the record out and come. They've got the funds. They've got the money to pay. Sounds good, John. You got this track by the Browns. Amazing. I haven't heard that for years, literally decades. It's amazing. It's that's somebody who's just got a sampler, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I love about it. I mean, it's an early tune as well. It's mm. sort of 85, I think. Yeah. Maybe earlier than that, maybe 1984 house record. Um, I just loved it. It is that kind of uh, 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 <laughs> stabby finger stuff. Yeah. But it's just, you know, for me, that is so much about sampling. I remember that... Um, I loved going to America because when you press the button at the crossing, it would say walk. <laughs> and I'd spend hours just standing there going, because I just loved it. But, you know, that's that record is, is punk, pure punk house Chicago style. And it's just brilliant. And, you know, probably they got a little um, keyboard that had just about enough sampling to do that. Hmm. And, um, I actually got thrown off the turntables for playing that at Case to Soul Weekend. What, because it was too primitive? Yeah, because they, you know, they just couldn't understand it. Brilliant, brilliant. But there was a lot of records like that around at that time that kind of jumped off of that Buffalo Gals Art of Noise-esque kind of sound collage and a lot of early samplers, you know, Paul Harcastle, another good example, sampled voices and, and that, that kind of got old a little bit quickly, you know, the sort of no, 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 19 thing. Um, 
and and people got more into the musical side of things. But there's a whole raft of records, especially early house records like Chippy, like this, and We're Rocking Down the House, where it's just the same phrase repeatedly and rhythmically um, you know, spliced across the record probably live as well and triggered via a keyboard. Right. I mean, there's something also very uh, playful about it, isn't there, as mm. well? And it's like it sounds like somebody having fun, right? Yeah, totally. John, that's a lot of the stuff that you did like that. It's quite mischievous. It's quite fun, isn't it? You remember your Peter, Peter and the Wolf, you know, and yeah. it's kind of a bit mad, isn't it, as well? And there's something almost kind of vaudeville about it, right? It had a sense of humour, and we wanted to instill that into the records. And I think that quite an English thing or British thing. Not that I want to be UKIP when I say that, but, <laughs> um, you know, we, people of our generation, uh, we've been brought up on some excellent old television programs, <laughs> like doctoring Doctor in the House. Yeah. So hence where we, and lot, you know, we had a Rupert the Bear sample from one of those records and a BBC bang on the drummer break from a BBC children's programme. So there's a lot of that um, that infused our work. It's a, it's good to be able to be playful like that and political at the same time. And it's quite difficult sometimes to do that without coming across heavy handed. But there was a whole other side to it, which you've got into. I mean, you've got into, you've also got into uh, Kevin, which is more kind of abs- ambient, more esoteric. And I mean, that then the records like um, DJ Shadows introducing was that a kind of landmark in a way in sampling? Uh, a lot of people sort of say it's the first sample, sort of sampled album in in history. It's not, but it was a landmark for a lot of people. For what we were doing, it wasn't that new, but it was incredibly well crafted and also. Um, Shadows, you know, one of those deep diggers. There's a lot of stuff on there that you didn't know. And he'd crafted it incredibly well into something incredibly melodic. You know, it's a kind of masterpiece collage. You can't see the joins too easily on it. For you guys, because you were sort of, you were deep into this, you're making records with sampling... It was part of Ninja's whole ethos for a time, wasn't it, as Mm. well? So for you, like, hearing a record like that coming out, and you you were able, I guess, to pick it apart where you when you were like, "What's he doing?" And you know that was a th- because you were you were doing it yourselves, right? So if you hear a record like that, was was your response to it like, "How's he doing it?" Or "Where's that from?" Or well, no, it's more "Where's that from?" because we hadn't heard that stuff before. For me, anyway, it was very much I I kind of knew what he was doing, but I couldn't tell how much how many layers there were. You know, usually it's one or two layers, you can pick them apart. Well, that was like a rich tapestry. Yeah, definitely. And when, you know, for me, it was things that I recognised. I have the records and I was like, fuck, it's really used that well. I've got a little quiz for you both here. Okay. No. So who's the most sampled artist of all time? John? <laughs> Obviously, I want to say James Brown, but I think I'd get a klaxon because I don't think that's necessarily... Correct. It, it is correct. Up. It is correct. You're right. That's um, okay. yeah, over over three thousand times apparently. I don't know whether who's counting, but I mean, um, somebody's counting. No, uh, I wanted to ask Kev. This is uh, who, what's the most sampled track of all time, Kev? Uh, well, I would have said it's Funky Drummer, James Brown, but I and think it's probably I probably that. think it's Amen Brother now. It's actually changed the beat by five. Oh, five, five, cool. of course, because of the scratch that all oh, this stuff is really fresh. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm, that's... Just, well, I'm not claiming that I knew that. I actually, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, and of course, John, you know, you've went on to 
influence a lot of other artists. I mean, like you guys did a lot of, or still do actually, I imagine a lot of remixing and for some very well-known artists. is Was remixing in a way a sort of official, officially approved version of sampling? I mean, you're actually getting the original artist track and being allowed to do whatever you want to it. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say that for sure. I mean, it was a way that the industry recognised that they could have some of that kudos and cachet that came from the hip-hop revolution and the sampling revolution, and they could, as Kev said earlier, reinvigorate, in some cases, their artist catalogue. And we, we, you know, after paid in full, we got a, a shitload of requests to do remixes. Some we did and some we turned down. Some, you know, just didn't think that we could actually do anything to them. I remember being, meeting the New York lawyer for the Rolling Stones who wanted us to remix Sympathy for the Devil. And they were putting so many conditions <coughs> on the job that it just I was like, no, I can't be dealing. Matt and I was like, no, 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 no. They wanted us to fly to New York to record it in their studio. We weren't to take the tapes out anywhere. We couldn't have... Um, you know, copies of it. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. So eventually, we just said to the guy, "Look, I tell you what, you need to do. <clears throat> you just need to take the vocals, just take mixed vocals, and um, just release like those into the ether. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll get all the remixes that you need. You have to pay for any of them. You can pick the best ones, and then you, you can cash in on that. And and and." <laughs> it'll be fine but you know we're, we're not having anything to do with it <laughs> well i'm glad you mentioned the uh, rolling stones funny enough because of course they were involved in one of the great sort of i'd say great sort of sampling tragic stories of the last few years weren't they with the verve yeah oh of course yeah the, the verve didn't sample the stones did they they sampled andrew lou goldman's version of the stones and it was even i think it was a little musical coda that was at the end of his version which possibly wasn't even on the original uh, cover it was a cover version yeah, wasn't it was a cover it? but, of the but they managed to claim the publishing on the cover version where he'd added a coda his own musical mm. coda that famous line from a uh, bit of sweet sympathy that's it? that's yeah, yeah yeah bit of sweet sympathy it's the and, string line isn't yeah, it yeah but that, that's the thing you do a you do a cover of someone's song anything that you add to it is it's still theirs, mm. unfortunately. But, I mean, in that case, it wasn't just that um, they had to cough up. They had to cough up everything. I mean, yeah. the Stones themselves just took... I mean, took, they didn't do the collaborative thing, which John was talking about earlier. They took them to the cleaners. They took... And the Rolling Stones, they roll with some pretty uh, hardcore legal heads. And, you know, those heads can sniff out a serious amount of lunches and what have you. <laughs> and some people do that. I mean, we I, I sampled at Quincy Jones thing from a, an old soundtrack on one of my food records which was cut to pieces it was a rhythmic thing though and we cleared it but Quincy Jones and his people wanted 100% so it was either you strip this out which is the essential bedrock of your song or you don't put that song out so what do you want to do right and I had taken it so you know there's no yes! denying that the rhythm the rebel without a pause I'm lowering my level the hard drama where you never been I'm in you want styling you know it's time to get deep the enemy telling you to hear it they play the music this time they play the lyrics some say no to the album the show but much the sound I made a year ago I guess you know you guess I'm just a radical not on sabbatical yes to make it critical the only part of your body should be part in two pass the power on the hour from the rebel of you hey, yo, Jeff, man. I don't understand this man yo you gotta slow down man you know 
Radio. Suckers never play me on the mix. They just okay me now, knowing they grow. When the clock in my phone is no thinking and taking everything now the brother owns. Huh. My calling card, recording and audit, supporter of Chesamard, loud and proud, kicking live, next pause, supreme, loop for truth, bazooka, the scheme, flavor, a rebel in his own mind, supporter of my rhyme, designed to scatter a line of suckers who claim I do crime, they are my time, dig it. Still makes me laugh. Speaking of library music and ripping people off her bumper, right? Yeah, well, that's um, the Whip Screen mixes by the Evolution Control Committee, which can fairly, I can fairly confidently say, you know, started the mashup craze of the early noughties, but was actually made in 1994 by a guy called Mark Gunderson, who's uh, um, you know, been operating under the Evolution Control Committee since the late 80s, um, making cut-ups in a similar vein to Negative Land and Tate Beatles and and people like that. And um, what I love about that is it's obviously, it's the genesis of what, what makes a good mashup. It's two things that are so wrong, making a third thing that's so right or so silly and stupid that that it's entertaining you know public enemy with herb albert in especially in that particular herb albert song is just so it just doesn't it should never have happened but it did and in some weird way it's hilarious Uh, and what's equally hilarious is that it's just done on the fly you can hear the acapella going out of time it actually comes back into time later in the track but you know it's just so wrong it's right well, that's it. So the mashup was another sort of evolution of the uh, sampling, isn't it? Mm. We squash two tunes together. But what about this? What about this thing that you know, kind of a hip hop modern R and B thing, isn't it? Where you've got a track and then you just cut in a whole section of somebody's track. You know, there's Slim Shady was it and cutting in a Dido, you know, halfway through. And it's... I, I think that's a consequence of the mashup generation, right. if anything. And it's it's that um, again with with the whole the whole thing with sampling, it's recognising the familiar in a different context, and it gives you, you know, people have been doing it for decades, like um, PM Dawn sampled True by Spandau Ballet for a, for a set of Driftful Memories Bliss. It was a huge hit because people recognised True by Spandau Ballet. Puff Daddy did it with the Police. Every breath you take huge hit you know it's a kind of a no-brainer that they're, they're taking huge huge sounds that people are a whole generation of people are familiar with okay so john listen let's finish up so what is the future of sampling yes that's always a good question because it usually takes you by surprise and, <laughs> you know it's the last thing that you would expect which is what i i want really i i want it to be a mystery and not be something that i predicted because in it's more exciting that way. The endorphins are more kicked in, I think, when something really out of the ordinary happens. Um, I'm sure it's percolating in some far-off, godforsaken place where young people are bored shitless. Yeah, well, listen, thank you so much, both of you. Well, that was a sampling of uh, John Moore. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. And a sampling of... uh Strictly Kev, DJ Food, thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. That was great fun. And thank you, listener, as ever. What a wonderful pair they are, those two. We, our conversation was a lot longer, couldn't fit it all in, unfortunately. But John is going to come back and talk about his experiences with pirate radio and pirate TV. 
And for sure, Kev's going to be back with all sorts of other countercultural-related conversations. Hope you enjoyed this one. You can check all our countercultural-related conversations out at bureauoflostculture.com and, of course, on all major podcast providers. See you there, then, here, somewhere or another. Leave us a review if you love it. We'd love to hear from you. All right, next time, I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture.